Newport, Washington, April 1937. The Great Lakes steamer, the O.S. McFarland, is arriving from Erie, Pennsylvania after a five-day voyage. As the McFarland advances to port, the crew attempts to retrieve their captain, George Donner, but the captain is nowhere to be found. The crew finds his cabin, which was locked from the inside, empty, and his bed not slept in. An extensive search finds that George Donner has seemingly vanished into thin air, never to be heard from again. The McFarland had just been sailing through one of the most treacherous portions of water in the world, and the sight of countless mysterious disappearances, the Lake Michigan Triangle. Welcome to Badger Bazaar. A murder investigation would lead police to the farmhouse of Ed Gein. Mass murder at Frank Lloyd Wright's Spring Green Estate, Taliesin. Now authorities believe the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this episode 19 of Badger Bazaar. I am your host, Scott Whitman, along with me, your other host, Mickey Sanders. How That's you me. How's it going, Mickey? I'm pretty good. How are you doing? Wonderful. So we are, we're a few days out from Valentine's Day. It's Mickey's favorite, valen- favorite, favorite holiday of the year. I've been single of- most of my adult life, so <laughs> hell yeah, it is. So spring will be here before we know it, and we have a number of things coming up. We are in the process of putting together our schedule for the year. I think we mentioned in the last episode, we have a number of appearances coming up. Um, I think we can talk about the uh, statewide conference that Mickey and I are going to be at in You can see us. Lacrosse. You don't have to just hear us anymore. You can see us. Uh, no, we got more things coming that you can see us on. I have a uh, actually presentation coming up at, at the Neville Public Museum in Green Bay in May. We have some paranormal conferences we're going to be at. Uh, heading into the summer and the fall. So we're going to be at a number of places that you'll be able to see Mickey and I coming up this year. So be sure to follow us on social media, follow us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. There's going to be some more coming out this year. We're dabbling in YouTube. Uh, We're going to have a YouTube channel because if there's ever two faces that deserve to be on YouTube, it is the two faces right here. It's these two faces. Badger Bazaar. So come out and see us. We're putting the schedule together. A lot more appearances are going to be coming up, um, and we will mention those as we go on. So again, keep getting the word out there. We continue to grow. The episode before this, Harry Hebert, was, I think it's only been live for about two weeks, and it is our fourth most downloaded episode. 
So, you know, and I think that's two reasons. I think one is it's an interesting subject. It, it was a, a subject that people didn't know about and they were interested in learning about it. And two, I think, I, it, again, we're growing. I mean, you're getting the word not out just, there for us. Not just because um, of how much we eat. Actually, the podcast the, is growing. The numbers are wonderful. So continue to get the word out there for us. Thank you so much for that. So if you are a returning listener, thank you. Keep on listening. And if you this is your first episode, welcome to Badger Bazaar. We are happy to have you. There was that voice. And uh, we invite you to stay a while. And what we like to do in the beginning of every episode is kind of talk a little bit of current event style stuff about what's going on in terms of, uh, you know, that's relevant to the podcast. And there's a couple of stories that we have found since the last time we recorded that are interesting. And one, Mickey and I are big, are big sports fans. We've said that a number of times. We're big Wisconsin Badger fans, supporters of the program. Homers. And uh, anytime you see something like this, it kind of brings you down a little bit, especially when you remember the player. Right. I remember watching him even. Headline, former Wisconsin Badger receiver Marcus Randall L. found guilty in double murder. It goes on to say a former University of Wisconsin football wide receiver was convicted of two counts of first-degree homicide and other charges in the February 2020 shooting deaths of two women. Randall L., who was a wide receiver for the Badgers from 2004 to 2007, also was convicted of being a felon in possession of a firearm and one count of operating a vehicle without consent. Really using that college education. Jurors deliberated about two hours before finding Marcus Randall L. guilty in the slayings of 27-year-old Brittany McAdory and 30-year-old Sierra Winchester. Prosecutors argued Randall L. suspected Winchester was informing police of his drug dealing and that he killed McAdory to eliminate her as a witness. So here we have Marcus Randall L., who was a, a popular player when he played for the Badgers. Well, we remember he, he's the brother of Antoine. He's the brother Ooh. of Antoine. You know, and I think that's one of the reasons he was a popular player. Everybody knew the name. And he, right. Because Antoine was on the Steelers. He was like a slash-type player, from right. what I remember. Like before, well, It was kind of right after the Cordell It was Stewart right years. after Cordell right. Stewart, yeah. And, and, but, I mean, so you knew the name. And, I, and like you say, Marcus, I don't know that he was a superstar at Wisconsin, but I remember watching him. And, and you know, it was fun to watch. And then all of a sudden... And you think, okay, this guy's got a college education. With nothing else, he can use these resources and his, his somewhat notoriety. And um, that's not what he did. You just you wonder, obviously, he didn't go to the NFL or anything like that. He Again, he was a high, highly touted player. He was a popular player based on who his brother was. He, he didn't wind up being a star. He didn't wind up going to the NFL. He was still a, a dynamic player for the Badgers. Got a college degree, right? And you just wonder... Where what happens here? Because Antoine is still, he's a wide receiver coach for the Lions. All right. So he's still, obviously, you know, football is a big part of his life. And uh, Marcus, you got to wonder if they're still in contact, the fact that Marcus's life has gone so far off the rails, all that stuff. Is well, you, sad. right. You, you have you have a brother who's a, a successful NFL player and now coach. And then you have the younger brother who gets into drugs and there goes his life. Another story that we wanted to mention, we've been talking a. a a couple of times over the last few episodes about um, some kind of cold cases that are being solved lately. We talked about Betty Rolf, uh in Appleton cold case over 35 years, which has been solved now. All due to DNA using technology. DNA. Right? There's a, another 35-plus-year-old murder. I think this was over 40 years old in Green Bay that has just been solved recently uh, utilizing DNA. There's another case here out of Stevens Point that's been a, a, a cold case for 
38. 38 years. Her, to see the word anniversary is a little morbid and creepy when right. I read this article. Her name was Janet Rash, R-A-A-S-C-H. She was a student at UW-Stevens Point, 20 years old. In an article from the Stevens Point Journal from November 19, 1984, says, quote, student's death treated as homicide. Again, this is in 1984. The body of a University of Wisconsin Stevens Point woman, missing since October 11th, was found Saturday afternoon by deer hunters in the town of Buena Vista. Authorities believe she was a victim of homicide. The partially clad body of Janet Rash, 20, from Merrill, was found lying in a wooded area southeast of the intersection of highways 54 and J South in Portage County. Authorities could not say whether the woman had been sexually abused, but this was when they found the body, it was not good, right? She had been missing for several weeks. Uh, It was partially decomposed. She had been uh, clearly burned. So obviously this was thought to be a murder and it was thought for A bit of a horrific situation too with burn marks and the decomposition is going to happen, but... Anytime there's burning, typically that doesn't happen so for, afterwards unless they're getting rid of the body altogether. For many, many years, the, the narrative on this was that it was undoubtedly a homicide. Wausau Daily Herald, 1988, UW-Stevens Point student probably strangled to death. Stevens Point Journal, 2002, new clues surface in 1984 murder case. This is when they exhumed her body. Appleton Post Crescent, 2014. Clearly, somebody knows something about the identity of Janet Rash's murderer. USA Today Network, Wisconsin, in an article that ran throughout the state in 2007. Who killed Janet Rash? Well, now we have the answers to those questions. Stevens Point Journal, October 13, 2022. Janet Rash's 1984 death ruled accidental after 38 years. Which is crazy. So she was found on the side of a highway with her uh, kind of belongings laying around. As we said, she was burned through new photographs obtained by the state crime lab in Madison and additional photos at the Portage County Sheriff's Office. Experts, including UW-Madison forensic forensic examiner Dr. Robert Cordes and Portage County Medical Examiner Scott Rifleman. That's a great name, by the way. Hell yeah. Rifleman. Wasn't there a show called The Rifleman? The Rifleman, yeah. Who was present the day Rash was found, determined how she died says the evidence showed that while sleeping in her sleeping bag, Rash awoke to find herself engulfed in flames. Meaning she started a fire to keep herself warm while she fell asleep. The combination of the burns and conditions that night would have been lethal. She attempted to get back to State 54, but she collapsed and died at the spot where hunters found her. Her body was found about 100 yards from the highway, and her belongings were found 50 yards southwest of her body. So she was when she went missing, she was hitchhiking to... And it's it's not clear what was going on, but she was hitch. All we know is that she was hitchhiking to a large city for a medical procedure, and on the course of her hitchhiking, obviously she didn't get too far from Stevens Point, right? This is in Portage County, and again for almost forty years, the narrative of this was that she was a homicide victim, when she was not. Turns out it was just a sad fluke accident while she was hitchhiking. What I want to know is how do they know that she was off to a bigger city? to get a medical procedure done, she must have told roommates in college or something. Uh, yeah, it sounds like somebody knew something about what was going Before on. Before she left. Before Not her family. Left. And that's the other part of this picture. She was very close to her family. She was a good student in school. She, you know, she played an instrument. She did all these things, and she was close to her family. So it seems a little odd that she was hitchhiking, 
not getting a ride. So like you say, it must have been non-family people that, that found out she was going to get a medical procedure done in some bigger area that was providing this kind of procedure, whatever it was. It's and just sad. It's, it's sad. She obviously, she was going to sleep. It was October. She probably started a fire to keep warm. Right. Um, and she fell asleep and accidentally started herself just on a, fire. a sad mistake that could happen to anyone unless you sleep further away from the fire, obviously. But And this this is similar to a case that we're going to be covering in a couple episodes from now, maybe even the next episode. Um, but it's the advancements in technology, forensic technology, DNA technology, that is starting to solve some of these cases that are 35. 40 years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I, you know, I think the next few years is, is actually going to be really enlightening. Cold cases will be opening up and being solved a lot. Yeah, a lot of people are going to go to jail in the next, in or, the next few or, years. Right, which makes sense, but also cases like this where they wanted to put somebody in jail and it turns out she just had a horrible night that ended her life. A lot of questions would be answered. Right, right? for put the people who are for, left behind. Right? For closure for the families that need it, no doubt. Summer of 2021, I took the family to, um, actually, actually the family took me. This was a birthday gift for me from my family. So actually they took me, but we went up they to, they love you. They, they really love, love me, you. We went up to, uh, Pitchard Rocks National Lakeshore in Minasing, Michigan. We went on this, uh, shipwreck tour. So you go on this, this kind of double decker, it's a touristy thing. You go on this double decker boat and it takes you out on Lake Superior. The boat has a glass bottom and you go over these shipwrecks. It takes you over these shipwrecks that they know are there. And so you see these shipwrecks. You actually can see that. Yeah. Yeah. You, and you, just the boat you're on alone sounds pretty cool. Like double decker buses in London. Those are really cool just to be on. Right. Yeah. This sounds like a really cool experience. Just the boat alone. It's awesome. You see, obviously you see the pictured rocks and you see, you know, cliffs and waterfalls and and caves and old lighthouses. It's, it's, it's wonderful. Awesome. Totally would highly recommend this, this tour if you're ever up there. But so they believe that just in that vicinity of the pictured rocks, national lakeshore, there's 30 shipwrecks dating back to like the 1860s and like only half of them, they know where they are. You know, there's still, there's still like these, this mystery about why some of these came down. We've all heard of the Bermuda Triangle, right? But there's something called the Great Lakes Triangle as it was put forth in a book by a guy named Jay Gurley in 1977 called the Great Lakes Triangle. But we don't know exactly when that term was coined, but... He's the first one to put it in print, as you said, right? So Jay Gurley and, you know, kind of made popular the term the Great Lakes Triangle. This is where it would weave together like tragic tales of, of uh, strange shipwrecks and disappearances and plane crashes across the Great Lakes region. But that triangle has been broken down even further um, into like the highest concentration of weird occurrences and you know shipwrecks and such. And for us, that's a lot closer to us, and it's called the Lake Michigan Triangle. Now, this would be, for us, it starts at Manitowoc, right? So, so the, the first point of the triangle on this side of the lake would be Manitowoc. And then it goes down across the lake, southeast a little bit, to Ludington, Michigan, down to Benton Harbor, Michigan, and then back up to Manitowoc. So it kind of makes this elongated, inverted triangle. Manitowoc to Ludington, and then the tip kind of goes actually down south towards Chicago, and then back up to Manitowoc. Now, as Mickey said, it's not clear where that term was initially coined, but it's become popular based on Jay Gurley's 1977 book, The Great Lakes Triangle, who used the term 
the Lake Michigan Triangle. And as far as boundaries, as, I mean, even on land, it's kind of hard to designate a specific area where these strange, supposedly strange phenomena happen, but especially in water because things float and, and go adrift. A lot of this is, you know, like you say, it's it's speculation. Some of these stories might not necessarily fall exactly inside these so-called drawn lines on a map, but it's a vicinity kind of thing, like with anything else. If it happened near there, sometimes the crashes don't happen immediately where they were either. The, the boat goes a little further and then it sinks, and, and maybe even over the years, the, the remnants of any ship or whatever it is or plane, that, that stuff can move as the earth moves and as, as the water pushes it around. So it's to stay within these boundaries is not, that's just too constricted of an area, but it's a vicinity type of thing. Right, and, and the inventor of, I don't know if the inventor of the Bermuda Triangle, but the guy that kind of made that popular as well, an author by the name of Charles Berlitz, who we'll talk about more later, he himself thought that there were some of the, the some of the same forces in Lake Michigan kind of constricted into this area that is bounded by this Lake Michigan Triangle um, that was going on in what he coined the Bermuda Triangle. As the time goes by, th- this Michigan Triangle seems to be gaining notoriety, which is why we thought it was an interesting subject to talk about. According to Wood TV Channel 8 out of Western Michigan, police have been receiving UFO complaints over this designated area since 1913. So again, they weren't referring to the area as the Michigan Triangle, but they've been receiving UFO complaints for that long, over 100 years now. Some comment about a supposed uneasiness that people feel from time to time while traveling through the area. A lot of people having said that. Some stories of bright flashing lights that point to a speculation of a possible paranormal or extraterrestrial activity and interactions. Other speculation of inexplicable electromagnetic field present, which again leads to possibly extraterrestrial type of technology that we maybe don't understand and still others suggest along those lines the existence of some sort of time and or interdimensional portal so a lot of the speculation goes on whether the proof is there or not we'll get into that with our stories the point is it's it's gaining notoriety because it's just interesting to see if there is otherworldly other realm type things going on or if these stories can be explained by just stuff that happens on our planet. When you do the research on this stuff, as Mickey and I has, have done the last few weeks, you know, you can see how these writers and researchers are kind of piggybacking off each other as well, um, because it's kind of the same stories um, that they attribute to this, and some of them lay outside of, you know, the boundaries that we've been talking about. But this, you know, the Lake Michigan Triangle kind of came to our attention Um, I think for two reasons. One, I've always kind of had a passive interest in UFOs. You know, I've been interested in the shows and I watch the shows about possible extraterrestrials and Area 51 and things like that. And I love it. Mickey's hardcore into it. Yes. I was never that way before until what I I think was um, an encounter that I had several weeks ago. And we've talked about this extensively on the show. I won't go into it now. But, you know, I think I did have a UFO experience um, several weeks ago, and UFO does not mean alien, by the way. No. <laughs> I've mentioned that. Right. Actually, there's another term. UFO means un- unidentified flying object. There's another term that they often use now, UAB or UAP, unidentified aerial phenomena, which, again, doesn't necessarily mean otherworldly, just means something that people don't know exactly what it is. So that 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 experience obviously um, made me much more interested in this subject, and also in the new inclination of Unsolved Mysteries, which is extremely popular on Netflix. There is uh, an episode in the new inclination which talks about 
uh, a UFO incident, again, unidentified object, flying object incident that happened in the parameters of what would be the Lake Michigan Triangle. So it's kind of it's kind of timely. It's 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 being talked about now. It's kind of in pop culture right now. So uh, not that this is a UFO episode. It's definitely not. You know, but it does lend itself to the lore of the Lake Michigan Triangle. These we'll are, address those types of concepts because they're whether they're true or not. It's stuff that people speculate on when they have these kind of occurrences. They're mainly earthbound <laughs> vessels vanishing, right? Ships and schooners and airplanes. Um, it, there's no doubt some weirdness here, no question about it. But but, not, but again, like you're alluding to, a lot of what happens, a lot of it has to do with weather and speculation for the reasons go from the depth of the lake in this area to forces beyond our current realm. But again, a lot of it could be explained by weather, but who knows? Right. Some of the stuff doesn't just, it doesn't meet the narrative of, of the Lake Michigan Triangle, but... You know, and we'll be sure to point this stuff out. In our cynical way that we do. What most people, I think, point to as the first incident happening inside of the Lake Michigan Triangle. Well, I, I guess actually the first would be the first ever ship to sail on the Great Lakes. The first ever ship to sail on Lake Michigan, which would be the Griffin in 1679. But that's got a lot of unknowns to it. And we'll circle back to that a little bit. Um, but really the first mysterious case involving the waters of the Lake Michigan Triangle is that of the Thomas Hume. Now, the, the Thomas Hume was a three-masted schooner built in 1870 in Manitowoc. Manitowoc, obviously a massive shipbuilding industry there, home to the Wisconsin Maritime Museum. I think the high school is still the ships or the shipmakers, something like that. Something like so that. obviously lots of shipbuilding in Manitowoc still to this day. So this, the Thomas Hume was 132 feet long. A, a schooner is basically a boat that's got masts on it for sails. Three of them, yeah. This one had three, and it was initially named the H.C. Albrecht, but it was bought and sold a few times. It was refurbished a few times and ultimately purchased in 1877 by Charles Hackley, who was a lumber baron in Muskegon, Michigan. And it was renamed the Thomas Hume, who in 1883, when he, the actual person, Thomas Hume, who was actually an employee of Hackley's, but he became his business partner, when the original business partner, James McGordon, passed away. So Thomas Hume uh, invests in the business with Charles Hackley, and in honor of that, they buy this boat and they name it the Thomas Hume. And this hauled lumber from Muskegon to Chicago. So, you know, we got to look at where we are now, 1891, right? By May 21st, 1891, this was hauling lumber to Chicago. We're 20 years outside of the Great Chicago Fire. Chicago is just being built now, right? The Chicago World's Fair was in 1893, which was themed in architecture. We talked about this with Frank Lloyd Wright. We talked about this during the Peshtigo Fire. So we're in 1891 when Chicago was the hub of architecture. So you have lumber being brought to Chicago by the, by the thousands of tons, probably a day. And so much of it was being harbored here. Here and in and in northern Michigan, right? right? So by eighteen by May twenty first, eighteen ninety one, who knows how many times the Thomas Hume took a cargo of lumber from Michigan to Chicago. I mean, that's many successful trips, probably right? weekly. You would think right. about you know so many times, right? Which kind of adds to the mystique of this whole story. Now, on this day, May twenty first, eighteen ninety one, the Thomas Hume had dropped off a cargo of lumber, which had, as we said, it did umpteen times before and it's leaving chicago harbor i think more than umpteen i'm just throwing that out there so it's leaving chicago harbor to go back to muskegon and along with it 
is a boat called the Rouse Simmons. It was also owned by, by Hackley and Hume. So you have these two sister ships owned by the same business, both leaving Chicago Harbor at the same time to go back to Muskegon, Michigan after dropping off a cargo of lumber. Newspaper reports out of Muskegon from May 29th, 1891, so we're a few days after this now, say the ships, quote, cleared from Chicago for Muskegon. A stiff gale was blowing. They slipped along pretty lively and encountered a heavy sea. A dark, windy night. The Simmons labored in the storm for several hours and finally put back into Chicago, arriving here in Muskegon Wednesday night. So they wussed out and waited for calmer waters. That's one Or way made the it. smart decision, whatever, yeah. <laughs> Upon arriving here, the captain was much surprised to learn that the Hume had not been heard of. So, right, so they left, they left harbor in Chicago. They ran into a storm. The Rouse Simmons said, nope. Not right. doing this. Made the right decision. Turn around. Tomorrow with that. always comes if you are still alive. Right. But the Thomas Hume said, "Nah, man, we're gutting it out. We got this. This is our storm." So the Ralph Simmons comes back. They waited out a day or two. They head back to Muskegon, and when they get back there, they notice that the Thomas Hume is not there. Gone. Now the captain of the Thomas Hume was Harry Albright, along with a seven member crew. Now Albright had a reputation for not being phased by a little weather, right? He was a bit, Obviously. Of a, a bit of a tough guy. Badass. Mother Nature got nothing on me. When the Ralph Simmons gets back, they, they're they a little worried that something happened to the Thomas Hume, but they're not fully freaked out yet because of Harry Albright. They said, no, he is he's too experienced of a captain. He's too good of a captain. This ship is built too sturdy to go down in the storm that they had, which was, it was not... Um, this was not a monster storm by any means. It was something that they would think the Thomas Hume would have been able to get through, which is why Harry Albright made the decision to keep going in the Again, first yeah, place. Yeah, he's not going to risk everything they have on the ship and the members if he doesn't think he can navigate through it, of course. So initially they felt that he, you know, possibly he just turned off and, and pulled into another port and he'd be back in a few days. Well, a few days go by and he doesn't come back and the Thomas Hume doesn't come back. So they send out a search crew. And they find nothing. No debris, no bodies, no Thomas Hume. Seven people total amongst the ship and everything else it was carrying. Gone. So now rumors start to swirl about what happened. What? Even back then? Even back are... then, people speculated people with... People shot their with, mouths off without knowing? zero evidence of anything and just said what they thought as fact. You know, people first said that the, the crew actually stole the boat. It was, it was speculated that the crew stole the boat, brought it into another port, painted it. Sure. As that would disguise it enough, right. apparently. <laughs> Put a big mustache on the front. Change the name of this. Make it Thomas Flume. They'll never know. What the hell? So that was one of the stories that was floating around, that the crew actually stole the boat. Another story that was going around, and this is one that the owners actually thought, um, is that it was run down by another boat, and it was basically run over by a freighter and the crew of that freighter was basically sworn to secrecy and like, never told anybody. Like pirate piracy or just or just by accident and you don't okay. want to tell anybody that you killed seven so it people. So wasn't intentional so just, then they just were it was incompetence. Well who knows it's, it's all speculation but I, I like the, the idea of piracy a little more. So they asked you know the the captain that was in charge of the the search crew to go find the Thomas Hume was asked what he thought happened in the news article in, in June 11th, 1891. So we're just a few days after this happened, a couple of weeks after this happened. He said, quote, collision, 
run down, of course. If she capsized, it wouldn't sink, and I don't believe that stiff vessel ever capsized. Some steamer ran her down. That's what the captain of the search crew thought. So although it seems fairly evident of what happened to this, right, that it got caught in weather, but everybody that knew the boat, everybody that knew the captain said no way. Which does, it does lead to some skepticism because like you said, the people who knew them best and knew the boat. So again, because a lot of it's hearsay at this point, for the longest time, for decades, a lot of these stories would, you know, as like anything else, they'd build up. But with, with those kind of people who knew him and the boat, believing that there's no way this could have happened, it leads to people speculating on otherworldly type phenomena or whatever else, you know? So the mystery is, right, the mystery is that this boat, there was not weather enough that they believed would take that boat down. Not with that boat and not with that captain. But the boat was missing. For decades. So now the the other thing here is that in the same article that quoted the, the captain of the search group, it also says, quote, for days... The reporters have been endeavoring to learn the names of the crew, but to no purpose. The Hume, like all other vessels, kept a book on board. That book is lost with her, and no list of the crew was left ashore. That's a little so, sketchy. So these boats, well, this is this is how it was done there. Right, right. But the, these boats didn't have lists left offshore. They didn't even know who was on it. That was their blog or their log of it. The, the people would sign the ship blog to be on the boat and then they took they took the book on, on the, the boat, boat with them so if something were to happen to the boat guess what we're there that goes also the thing is there was actually a 300 dollars reward offered for any remnants to discover so that they could figure out what happened and even that went in vain they did that because they thought that that would entice a crew if it was run down that would into that 300 dollars, which was a lot in 1891 oh that was a lot of money um, that that would entice somebody to come to come forward and said, yeah, we we did this, uh, but it, nobody ever did. They still wouldn't admit to it if the, if something did happen. So about three weeks after the ship vanishes, a bottle washes up on shore at the beaches of Benton Harbor, Michigan. It's got a brown paper note in it. Now Benton Harbor is one of the points of the triangle. Remember, it's, it's from Manitowoc to Ludington to Benton Harbor back to Manitowoc. So this this boat, or this bottle, washes up on shore, and the note in the bottle reads, quote, We the undersigned are the passengers of the Thomas Hume. The schooner's hold is rapidly filling with water, and we have no hope of escape. We are on the St. Joseph course and been drifting for hours. We have friends in McCook, Nebraska, and Elkhart, Indiana. Please notify them of our fate. It was signed by two names, Wilbur Grover and Frank Maynard. But immediately, this was thought to be a prank. Nobody believed it. Because one, the ship didn't carry any passengers. It just had a crew. And two, it was not on the St. Joseph course. The St. Joseph course was about 90 miles south than the course that they should have been on while they were heading to Muskegon. So nobody believed this letter. So for well over a hundred years, the Thomas Hume lay hidden away, taking all of her secrets with her until sometime which is actually in the 1990s. And there's a discrepancy regarding the exact year. But sometime in the 1990s, a salvage team looking for World War II-era planes in Lake Michigan. Now, Lake Michigan was a, was a training ground for fighter planes during World War II. And so there's a lot of World War II-era planes that crashed in Lake Michigan during training exercises. So this is what the salvage crew was looking for. And they found, in 145 feet of water, the Thomas Hume. It was virtually fully intact. It's sitting upright on the bottom of the lake, 
Its three masts were broken and laying across it. And again, the ship was supposedly in near perfect condition, which sounds strange with all the erosion and, and stuff right, that would happen. And it's sitting upright on the bottom of the ocean or bottom of the lake. Now, there were no obvious markers that it was the Thomas Hume. So there's no serial numbers that they found. There was a nameplate, but the paint was off of it. So it, they couldn't find any identifying marker that said it was the Thomas Hume. So it took about 20 years until after they, from the time that they actually found the boat until they became, until they came public with they were it confident actually. confident enough to actually say something about it. Right. And they're still doing research from what I've read as far as the cause of the wreck, just, just to find out every detail. But they're a lot more confident than they were when they first found it. Right. So they, they're, they're pretty certain it is the Thomas Hume. And it says, because of all the well-preserved artifacts left undisturbed in the ship, it is known as one of the most comprehensive shipwreck surveys of all of Lake Michigan. So they found everything in the ship. Everything was in there. It's almost as if the ship was sailing, and then it boom, it went straight down. It landed straight up, and everything that was in it is still in it. Right. So they found clothing, shoes, shirts, vests, pants, socks, sweaters. They found buttons that was engraved. Like it was encapsulated, though. Right. Like, for, like Han Solo type stuff, you know, like frozen in carbonite or something, because it was in perfect condition. Everything's still there. They found high-end wool jackets with uh, buttons on it that was inscribed with the name Nicole the Tailor, which was a well-known high-end maker of expensive men's clothes back in the day. All the, the, the kitchen was intact. There, the cooking, the stove was there where there were plates, utensils, lanterns, frying pans. There was even food. They found food. It's still laying there like on the counter and that which they later determined was cheese. I mean, it's it's pristine. Wisconsin Everything in that cheese, boat. That shit lasts forever. It's got to be Wisconsin cheese. Right. How could it not be? Lasts forever. Now, because of the clothing that was found inside of it, and the fact that the crew didn't usually have clothing, they didn't usually bring luggage with them. They were naked. Well, they, I think they just pretty much. What was on their back? Maybe. Yeah. Oh, maybe, maybe a, a change or two. But this, right. I mean, they found a lot of high-end clothing on this boat that the crew would not have. So, because of this, that suggests that there were indeed passengers on the ship. So before they left from Chicago to Muskegon, they brought passengers with them to go back to Michigan. Which adds to that story you mentioned before. It gives credence to the message in a bottle that was dismissed 100 years ago as a prank. Now, it was also... I keep hearing genie in a bottle when you say that. I'm a genie in a bottle, baby. Come, come, come on and let me out. I'm sorry. It just keeps ringing through my head. Now, also, the boat was found halfway between Chicago and St. Joseph, Michigan, along the St. Joseph course, which also proves that letter right. They had somehow, for some reason, gone way further south. They were either blown south or Harry Albright made the decision to turn south to try to go around the storm. Which sounds reasonable. Prevailing theory says that storm caused turbulent waves, causing the ship to capsize. But again, it's by all sounds, the storm wasn't so bad that this guy wouldn't know how to navigate around it. Genealogy records also show that there was indeed a Wilbur Grover. He was 31, single, he was a pharmacist, and he lived just outside of Elkhart, Indiana. So Wilbur Grover and Frank Maynard were on this ship that perished when the ship went down. That message in a bottle that was found 100 years ago in Benton, Michigan, was legit. Right. They were trying to send a message, not screw with people. Now, because of, obviously, the log went down with the boat, 
nothing was kept offshore. We don't know how many people went down on that boat. We have no idea, and we likely uh, never will. So another ship attributed to the Lake Michigan Triangle is probably the most famous of them all. And we've actually already mentioned it. It's the Rouse Simmons. Now, that may not be a name that people know, but many people, at least on this side of the lake and along up the coast in Door County and such, know this as a different name, the Christmas Tree Ship. It's a well-known story, very famous story. It's in popular children's books. It's influenced many songs. It's been made into plays and musicals and documentaries, you name it. So the Christmas Tree Ship is a very well-known shipwreck off the coast of, which was basically two rivers. Now, the Rouse Rouse Simmons was 123 feet long, built in Milwaukee in 1868. It's named for Rouse Simmons of Kenosha, who was the founder of the Simmons Mattress Company, which is still uh, a very popular brand today. It's in every furniture store in America. So this was built, again, as a lumber ship, as so many of these boats were at this time, 1860s, 1890s. And again, the sister ship of the Thomas Hume, as we already mentioned. This was also bought and sold several times, owned, as Mickey just said, at one point by Hackley and Hume, and running lumber between Michigan and Chicago for years, uh, part of that time with the Thomas Hume. Now, in 1910, the Rouse Simmons was purchased by Herman Schooneman. He invested in it, actually. He didn't purchase it clear by himself, but... Schooneman, who was born in Algoma, Wisconsin, right on the shores of Lake Michigan, was a sailing captain in Chicago. And again, he hauled cargo for a lot of these lumber companies. And they would purchase these old schooners that were past their prime, maybe a little leaky, you know, because for the cargo that they, that they ran, lumber, it didn't really matter. It didn't matter if wood got wet, right? It right. didn't, if it rained or if, or if, you know, water was coming up through the hold, it didn't matter if the lumber got wet. So they didn't, it, they didn't care that these ships were past their prime or that they were 20, 30 years old. They were still sturdy, and they carried... Big. They could carry a right. lot. They, they were weighed a ton. They could carry a lot of cargo and a lot of weight. So he and his brother, August Schooneman, he was also a sailing captain, and they were in business together, and they, they kind of ran a side hustle where they would, during the Christmas season, they would fill their ship up with evergreens, and they'd bring them back down to Chicago and sell them directly to consumers. So they lived in Chicago, and they would take their boats up to the UP. They would employ lumberjacks. They would cut down a ton of evergreens. And they would bring them back to Chicago, and they would sell these as Christmas trees right to consumers. Now, a lot of ships sold Christmas trees, right? But most of them sold them to wholesalers who would then retail them. But the Schunemans, you know, they figured they would just cut out the middleman do the work themselves, and sell the trees directly themselves. Now, in 1898, November of 1898, August, Herman Schooneman's brother was delivering Christmas trees aboard a ship in Glencoe, Illinois, which is just north of Chicago, and his schooner was caught in a storm, and the ship busted up, and he and his entire crew were killed. But Herman continued on, right? He knows the risks, but it's the family business, right? So he keeps it going. So he did this every year. He would sail up to the UP, fill a ship with trees, and they would they'd pull their ship dockside right down by Clark Street Bridge. You can still go there today. They'd pull their boat in right to Clark Street Bridge, right in the heart of Chicago, and they would string their boat up with lights, right? And people would come right onto their ship, and they'd pick out Christmas trees. And Herman's wife and daughters would come, and they would 
They would make wreaths and they'd sell wreaths. And you, I mean, you can just imagine the scene here. Their boats basically lit up like a Christmas tree. While they're selling Christmas trees, probably had music playing. And he would also donate these trees a lot of times to churches and charities for people that couldn't afford these. And he, was, he got a nickname. He was known in Chicago as Captain Santa because he was so generous. He would do this. He would give these trees away while also selling them. But he would give these trees away to charities and churches and to lesser advantaged people that couldn't normally afford a Christmas tree. So he was beloved. Him and his family were beloved in Chicago. It was known that, uh, you know, the holiday season doesn't start in Chicago until Herman Schunemann is docked over by Clark Street Bridge with his Christmas trees. Just kind of the reputation that he got. So it was pretty successful for them. You know, he supplemented their income well. And in 1910, he purchases the Rouse Simmons. Now, on the afternoon of November 22nd, 1912, the Rouse Simmons was at Harbor in Thompson, Michigan, in the UP, and he filled it up with three to 5,000 Christmas trees, ready to make its final voyage of the season. And again, this is November 22nd, heading into Thanksgiving, we're heading right into Christmas season. Now, Herman allowed the lumberjacks, some of the lumberjacks, to come back with him on the boat so they could um, obviously spend Christmas with their families in Chicago. But again, nobody knows exactly how many people were on this boat. Some say it was between 14 to 16. Some believe it's as high as 23. We don't know. Now, weather here was not ideal, and it was known that a storm was coming in, but it was thought that it was likely that the heaviest would stay out of their path. But still, there were other ships at the harbor there in Thompson uh, who decided not to go, and they decided to wait it out. But the Rouse Simmons decided to move on out. Just like ironic, isn't it? It's sister ship when it went down. And it made the opposite decision. Back then, and now right. it's doing and the so same thing. so now it made a fateful dun, dun, decision. Dun. Now, the next time it was seen was around noon the next day, which would be November 23rd. So by this time, it was fighting gale force winds and heavy waves. The storm obviously was on its way. It seemingly tried to reach port at Bailey's Harbor in Door County, uh, but it was blown back into the lake. And its sails appeared tattered, and she was obviously struggling. It was next seen by a life-saving station in Kiwani around 2.50 p.m. that afternoon. Again, reports of tattered sails and that they were flying the flag at half-mast, which is obviously the universal signal for distress. So the station keeper there at Kiwani was maneuvering, and they were going to get the gas-powered boat that they had, tugboat, out to go out to the Rouse Simmons, but they noticed that the boat was already out. It had been, it'd been taken out earlier to go to another boat that was in apparent distress. So they didn't have anything left. They just had some rowboats there that obviously he wasn't going to take out, which was the right decision. And another key note here is the, the distress flag was flying even though it was clear conditions. That's what adds to the mystery of this whole story. Just such strange things going on that from a distance look like they're not having any problems. Why is there a distress flag? The skies are perfect, you know. So the guy in Kiwani phoned down to the next station at Point Beach in Two Rivers, who did send out a rescue mission about 3.30 that afternoon and searched for five hours. And they never found the Rouse Simmons. It was never seen again. So now for decades, there were various stories about the ship that added to the mystery. As Mickey said, there were reports from for decades, for many years, that it was... Um, sailing in a driving snowstorm. You can read all kinds of reports from writers and researchers today talking about 
uh, a blinding snowstorm that this was driving in or this was sailing in. And that's not true. Weather reports from that day say that while it was seen in Kiwani, as Mickey said, the, cl- the skies were clear. It was windy. The waves were rough. There was a storm coming and a storm did come. And the storm that came was pretty brutal. It took down a bunch of ships, actually. But the storm didn't get there until after the Rouse Simmons was already gone. So it's not true that the Rouse Simmons went down um, in, a, in a driving snowstorm. There was weather there. There was wind. There was pretty heavy waves. But it was not a driving snowstorm that a lot of people try to report today. Now, it was also reported that the ship was so overloaded with trees that many of the original crew refused to go, and that another crew was quickly put together so they could get out of port in Thompson. So although there is an account from one crew member who didn't go because of that reason, he thought the boat was overloaded, um, Nobody, the rest seems pretty embellished. Nobody else has come forward, ever came forward after that, and said that they refused to go, that they were supposed to go on the ship, but they refused to go, and they would have been stranded in Thompson, right? They would have been stranded on the other side of the lake, and no one ever, obviously we would have heard of that. Nobody ever came forward after it went down and said that um, they thought the ship was overloaded. So there, there's all these questions. You know, why did it go down? Who was on it? Did the crew abandon ship? All this leads to this you know, mystery of the Lake Michigan Triangle. About a year later, Christmas trees started washing up on shore, and they were washing up four years later. So in 1923, his wallet was found. Herman Schooneman's wallet was found. It was brought in by a fisherman in in its net. Trivers fisherman. If If you're from Wisconsin, you know Trivers is two rivers, but that's how you pronounce it. And it was wrapped in oil skin which his wallet was, and inside of it were clippings that he would save of him being referred to as Captain Santa. And people that were grateful for him and that were appreciative of him um, and showing his generosity. So he would keep these uh, news articles in his wallet. It's funny how that, the trees and that are all that showed up on shore. Nothing else would show up for years. No bodies, again. No, rem- you know, they say no that other they- remnants other than a tree and a wallet. Santa's wallet and Christmas trees are all that showed up. I mean, that's a weird kind of Christmas miracle if I've ever heard of one. Now, 60 years later. Twisted and morbid, which is right up our alley. 60 years later in 1971. October. The wreck of the Rouse Simmons was found by a hobby diver. Now, in unlike what happened with the Thomas Hume, uh, this hobby diver that found the Rouse Simmons was able to take home movies of it, and it says Rouse Simmons right on the boat. So the nameplate was in clear view, and he knew that this was the Rouse Simmons immediately. It was found in 165 feet of water off the coast of Trivers, as we Mm -hmm. specifically mentioned, with no sign of the cause. So they say, so a full survey wasn't completed by the Historical Society, the Wisconsin Historical Society, until 2006, in which it's, it's determined that they believe so the trees are still on the boat. There's a bunch of obviously skeletonized Christmas trees still on the boat at the bottom of Lake Michigan. So what they believe... Nice word for our podcast. Even with trees, you can make it morbid and macabre. Of course. What, what they believe happened is that there was ice was forming on the trees, and it just added to the weight, which was already heavy because of all the trees on it, that it, it basically nosedived in the heavy waves that were there, and it wasn't able to... Um, it wasn't able to right itself. It wasn't able to get itself back up. So today it lies 
as Mickey said, six miles northeast of Rowley Point in Point Beach State Park in Two Rivers in the middle of Lake Michigan. Now, personal story here, we love, my family loves to go to, uh, to Point Beach State Park. And it's a, it's a great place. They have trails all over the place. They have, the beaches are great. They have a dog beach. You know, you can take your dogs there and run around. And we have all kinds of pictures of us, my kids and my dog, um, with Rally Point Lighthouse in the background. And so when we got our newest dog, our new Sharpay puppy, we named him Rally. So six miles northeast of that is where the Christmas tree ship lies today. So another story in 1919, it said that there were random reports that spoke of two large balls of fire falling into the water. It said that the explosion was so powerful that it shook the earth. The Sausalito News in California even, way out west, reported the impact was heard as far away as Indiana. New York Times also reported that it was a huge meteor. And some still believed it to be extraterrestrial or a paranormal event. For some time after, though, many incidents of supposed UFO sightings were reported by locals as a result of this. So again, a lot of this seems to be speculation, but news stations were reporting these great balls of fire falling into the water. Chances are it was a meteor, but another strange phenomenon going on in a situation where you don't often see those kinds of strange actions happening. So now, this this is where this stuff starts getting a little creepy for me. The Rosa Bell, built in Milwaukee in 1863, 100 feet long. Now, for most of her life, she was, again, a lumber schooner and utilized out of Sheboygan. It was eventually purchased by the House of David, which is a religious sect founded in Benton Harbor, Michigan. Now, there's actually people still part of this uh, cult today. There's not too many of them, but it still exists to a point. Now, this House of David, they also owned an island up in the northern part of Lake Michigan called High Island, and they owned it presumably for logging purposes, but also High Island is part of a larger contingent of islands up there um, in northern Lake Michigan, so you're coming up to the like the Straits of Mackinac. You know, Lake Michigan and Lake, and Lake Huron are actually one body of water, but they just kind of separate them at the Mackinac Bridge, at the Straits of Mackinac, into two different lakes, but it's actually one body of water. So as you get up towards the Straits of Mackinac, there's a contingent of islands up there. The biggest one is called Beaver Island, which is right next to High Island, which is a, a piece of land owned by this House of David. Now, Beaver Island was a, the site of a very bizarre story in the 1850s in which there was a self-proclaimed king now, Mickey and I are actually going to be covering uh, this story in a future episode. Coming up soon, actually. But basically, Beaver Island was the site of the Kingdom of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Ever heard of that? So after Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormons, was assassinated, there was this power struggle for control of the LDS um, between James Jesse Strang, who is going to be the focus of our episode, and, of course, Brigham Young. Obviously, everybody knows who Brigham Young is. You know, much of that centers on a now-defunct town uh, in Wisconsin that was called Vory. But we're, I mean, we're talking ancient American leaders. We're talking uncovered ancient tech. One of the only... Illuminati. The only king in American history. That's the guy that... Lang, well, self-proclaimed king. Well, still... Well, and if you you take this other guy into account, which we're going to get into, but... um, The other thing is, is... You'll notice we nicely tie a lot of our episodes together. Well, you know, if it's if it's 
if it's weird, you know, you, you didn't, a lot of people didn't know that the, uh, you know, the founder of the Mormon church in Salt Lake City and all that stuff, um, had anything that to do with, to us, your, with, with us old Scani. I didn't realize it. Right. And, and like you say, a lot of the, a lot of the first that happened, I'm always astonished doing this research. Again, every, all this stuff seems to tie together. A lot of it's in the same time period and all that, but it's, it's funny how it all comes together right. and pieces together like a big ass puzzle. If, if it's weird. And that's a weird story. And we're on top of it. We're going to cover it. But um, so obviously, this is why the House of David was likely there because there had already been uh, kind of a, a weird type of religious sect up in that area to begin with. Now they had rules. This House of David had had you know they were communal living, celibacy. You couldn't cut your hair or your beard. Right. Sounds like a fun place. <laughs> so, Sign me up. So they would they would often transport goods from High Island to their home base in Benton Harbor. That sounds like a fun place. I, I bet. Yeah. yeah. So they would go up there logging, obviously, and they would bring the, the lumber back down to, to Benton Harbor um, for kind of their home base there. But in October 1921, the normal captain for the ship, Ed Johnson, refused to go. He had a, I guess he had a premonition or something spooked just him. Just like we that, mentioned in that last. You know, some, like something. These guys just, they, they start to know the water so well that they have a feeling. They look at the sky they have a feeling they just know when something bad's going to happen and they you know you only have to be right once to be happy you were so something spooked this captain and he said i'm not i'm not going back to benton harbor so they just summoned another somebody else they just summoned somebody else to captain the ship to get it back to benton harbor and it never made it so he was right so on october 30th 1921 the captain of a car ferry this is basically a ship that was carrying train cars they have those now. across the lake right. um, saw a ship floating upside down in the middle of Lake Michigan. Oh. That's the eerie part of this. 42 miles east of Milwaukee. The hull was overturned. The cabin was ripped off the deck with part of the stern, which was smashed. The rigging was lying loose all over the place. No bodies. All 11 crew members disappeared completely. But you see this hull floating upside down, which is just a creepy, eerie, if you can picture it in your head, it's just scary. Now, here's the other thing is there's no weather. There was no weather. There's always weather. Well, there was there was no inclement weather. Clear skies. During their whole journey from October 21st when they were leaving to October 30th, there was nothing in their path of any kind of weather that would have caused any kind of distress for that boat like i mentioned before with the distress flag with clear skies it, it's from a distance it seems odd which adds to the mystique of these stories so what happened that would that would overturn this boat and put it upside down in lake michigan godzilla now, initially they believe it was ran down by another freighter as we had talked about earlier and obviously and, and you know sailors did believe that happened but there was no other boat that reported any other damage there was no boat that reported that they might have hit another boat Nothing like that. And the investigators that went out to the boat saw what happened to it. It didn't, it wasn't, the damage to the Rosabelle uh, was not consistent with it being, uh, with it colliding with another boat. It just, the damage to it, it looked like it was blown apart. And they don't know what would have caused that. Now, again, there's discrepancy about the number of crews. So the media at the time was reporting 9 and 11. Some were reporting 9, some were reporting 11. But the House of David, in their official report, said they believe that there was 28 on the ship. That's a massive discrepancy. That's a big difference. And no bodies. 
Where, no matter what the number is, yeah. Where'd they go? So, you know, here's, here's what's, it just, it seems that, here's what's interesting, that throughout its life, the life of the Rosabelle, it seems that the lake was always trying to get it, right? So it's built in 1863, but in 1865, it gets pummeled in a sudden squall on Lake Michigan, kills its captain. The rest of the crew gets away, but the captain gets, you know, beaten in the head with falling debris and, and, and he dies a few days later. So it, it's out of commission for 10 years, and it gets rebuilt. So, you know, very similar to what happened in 1921, happened in 1865, but it gets rebuilt. It's out of commission for 10 years. And again, in 1906, it collides with another boat. Apparently, as what we said, these go undocumented. Apparently, this was a boat that ran it down, never reported it. Very similar to the one, the first one we mentioned. Crew was lost. It's out of commission for about 10 years. No ship accidents reported or remains found. Uh, ships nearby reported no signs of wrecks or collisions or people in distress. Coast Guard determined no collision occurred. D- d- same story. So twice over, this thing was... The same ship. This thing was blown apart in the lake and rebuilt. And then the third time it goes, you know, it's just like the Rouse Simmons where, you know, the first time... It's about to sail into a, a, a storm. It says, no, we're going to turn back. It turns back. And then 21 years later, it sails into a storm and it gets it anyways. So it's almost like, you know, one way or another, I'm going to get you. Now, even when they're trying to tow this thing out, even when they're trying to take this out of the lake. So they, they bring tugboats out there and they're trying to tow it out. And it could be a clear day, clear skies. And when they cook the tow up to it and they try to bring it into the sh- into shore, the next thing you know, it's got massive waves and it's, and it's busting the tow rope. They couldn't get this out of the lake for three or four days. It took them several times. <laughs> it just seems like there's some force there that said, no, I'm keeping the Rosabelle in Lake Michigan. Only on certain days, too, because, I mean, it... it, it it would make runs all the time, but uh, only on certain days did the water just say, no, today today it's mine. So now eventually they, they got it and they towed it into Racine and they basically just beached it. They left it on a beach in Racine and uh, they salvaged what they could out of it. They took what they, they could use out of it. For the most part, they just left it on the beach. And the last report known of it is from 1927, which says it was still just just kind of laying on the beach there. It's gone now, obviously. But uh, nobody wanted anything to do with this thing, you know. Now, still today, here we are, you know, 100 years later, over 100 years later, and there's no official explanation of what happened to it. They have no idea. It wasn't weather. There is some people that believe it was a, there was gasoline. There were cans of gasoline on it that it might have exploded. But there were, again, there's no signs of an explosion. There's no fire. Nothing was charred or burned up. It was just, the, the ship was just busted apart. And that this story is also, as as you're alluding to, has led to speculation. Again, this triangle area containing a portal that transported people through folds of time. Even that story has been used to explain these strange phenomena that you're talking about. To cap this off, a few years later, the founder of the House of David, Ben Purnell, who was known as King Ben Purnell. They're just trying to copy what happened with Strang before right, him, yeah. you know. He was arrested and some subsequently convicted of debauchery. So he was basically forcing marriages on teenage girls to himself. King England. And then he would abuse them. This same shit you see in cults today, they were doing... Or back in... A hundred years the, ago. The British royalty when they 
would I have to be able to spread my seed right. is essentially what they were doing. But everybody else had to be celibate. Now, he, he dies not long after this, and there's a power struggle just with what happened on Beaver Island, you know, before this, um, between his wife, who was known as Queen Mary, and another member. So, you know, again, you can see the similarities between what was going on on Beaver Island here with, with James Jesse Strang. Next story here is about, is this is, you know, this adds to the creep factor here too a little bit. So April 28th, 1937, the Great Lakes freighter O.S. McFarland is making its way from Erie, Pennsylvania to Port Washington loaded with almost 10,000 tons of coal. Now the weather was cooler than expected, but it was fine. There wasn't any storms coming. Ice on the lake made travel a bit slower, but that's it. Again, there was there was no, weather was, was not a factor here. So it, the... The O.S. McFarland maneuvered its way through the Straits of Mackinac and into Lake Michigan, and it had pretty clear sailing until it got to Port Washington. Now, Captain George Donner retired for the evening. He he was tired, right? He's a 58-year-old man, so... It's 10.30 at night when they get when they get to Sheboygan. He, he tells his first and second crewmates that he's going to take a nap because he hadn't slept a lot in the, in the last four days because he... And we'll get into this of what was going on, but he was pretty nervous about things that were going on in the boat. So now that they're they're through the Straits of Mackinac, he feels much better about it. He's going to finally catch some Zs until he's got to be up when they head into Port Washington to steer the boat in. So he tells his first and second mate, I'm going to my cabin, wake me up when we get into Port Washington, which is going to be about two hours later. So they do. They're coming into Port Washington, and they go, and they're knocking on the, the captain's cabin to wake him up, and he doesn't answer, right? He's not in his room. He's door, not answering, at the least. The door is locked. The door is locked. So they go, they get a master key to the room. They go inside, and he's not in there. Not only is he not in there, there's no evidence that he was ever in there. He certainly didn't sleep in his bed. His bed looked like that nobody had laid in it for days. A lot of his effects were where he had left them earlier. So the crew just lost their captain. Vanished right off the boat. They have no idea where he went. That's one hell of a nap. I've had some good naps, but I've never left where I was because of it. Now, in newspaper reports the day after, so now we're on April 29th, 1937. So this is right after the boat comes into port. Basically, the first met the first mate takes over, steers the boat into Port Washington, and the newspapers are all over this. And dated April 29, 1937, it says, quote, Crew members said the captain was last seen in his cabin at 10.20 last night when the McFarland was off Sheboygan. The boat arrived at Port Washington at 1.30, and the crew searched in vain for the captain to bring the boat into port. The first mate, Charles Riker, brought in the vessel and reported the captain's disappearance. Crew members said the captain had slept little since the McFarlane, operated by the Columbia Steamship Company of Cleveland, left Erie, Pennsylvania last Saturday. They said he appeared to be almost in a trance yesterday. It says Captain Donner, who was about 60 years of age, but today, this day, April 29th, was actually his 59th birthday. Sheriff Ben F. Runkle, said the ship's officers told him Donner had worried throughout the trip because the vessel's compasses were not functioning properly. Because of the trouble and his refusal to rest, Donner was in a highly nervous state by the time the boat left Sheboygan. The ship's steward said that the captain came to him last night, explained he did not feel well, 
and asked him to stay in the captain's cabin throughout the night. The steward, said the sheriff, remained in his own quarters. So something was going on they with that captain. They didn't want to help him. He was maybe having a nervous breakdown or just... He, he appeared to be in a trance. Yeah, what, what, I mean... And he asked for help. He said, hey, I'm going to go take a nap. Can you stay in my room with me? And the dude said, no. And again, these are, as we've mentioned before, especially in Wisconsin Death Trip episode, this is kind of on the, on the ending of this time period, but crazy was easily thrown out. So the words like in trance, we didn't understand psychology and human behavior nearly as well back then. So those terms will be thrown out. Whatever that means, in trance, you could be drunk, you could be just tired, you could be in a deep thought. Who knows what that even means, but... Well, they, they, they did, were worried. They, they were concerned. It sounds like he hadn't slept for about four days. Which, and sleep deprivation will do that to you. That can kill you. Right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, th- he was not acting as a normal human being acts, especially as the captain, the leader. of. Th- it, it would scare everybody. But the fact that he didn't get support, he, he wanted someone to stay with him, and yet they denied it. So they were either so scared to be around him or just didn't want to deal with him that they didn't even decide to help him and support him at that time. But a that, lot of this would lead to as to what could have happened. That kind of blows my mind that he, he he asked for help. He said, can you stay in my room with me? And they said, no, they denied him. Who, so what does that does mean? That? Right. They're either like just disregarding him and writing him off like, okay, crazy old man. Or they're scared to death of something. Right. That he'll do something. But if you're afraid he's going to do something rash, then wouldn't that be, give you even more reason to to monitor him? So, you just know, a obviously situation all the way around. There's a question here, did he did he commit suicide? Did he jump off the boat? Did he fall off the boat in this trance state that he was in? And why was his room locked from the inside? Now, the that seems to show up later because all of these reports that happen right off the bat, like right when the ship, the next day. They don't mention I that. don't see that anywhere. Right. I don't see that mentioned anywhere. So They're, it's almost like the crew is trying to explain what happened. It seems like that might have come out. Like some, somebody changed a story. Like, like I, if you I, tell your crew to come wake me up, but you're going you're gonna to lock your door and not let them in, that right. doesn't sound... There's a lot of quit, and it it doesn't even necessarily sound like the crew's protecting itself, but just trying to rationalize what happened. So maybe they, and and after time, you remember things differently as you try to figure out what it is that happened because you didn't understand it to begin with. So maybe they just didn't understand the whole time, and the story changed as they tried to figure it out. You know, so I mean, there's all kinds of theories here. Did he did he jump off? Right? Did he kill himself? Did he fall off? Did they kill him? Did they kill him? Right? right. That's a Was this a mutiny where they just took out their captain? Which would explain the locked door if they're lying. What if he was a ghost? Right. What if he was a right? What What if he like threw himself off the boat back by the Straits of Mackinac? The sixth sense. He was dead the whole time. So I wonder the, if the doorknob was red. Maybe it was red, like everything else in that movie. There's so many ways we could go with this, and we are so far. You know, but I guess, I guess it's a interesting. It's a very mysterious. But and a curious are, mind will ask these questions, trying to figure, trying to rationalize again. And again, just like the crew must have been trying to do, unless it was a mutiny. And this is where you know the, the whole thing about the Lake Michigan Triangle right. comes from is what happened. Now you can you can logically explain this by saying, well, he jumped off 
or he fell off. You know, he, that he seems to be the most. He was having a nervous breakdown and crazy, and, and sleep deprivation, again, is a serious thing. Four days without sleep is a, that's a, think about that. That's a long time. And I mean, people have insomnia and stuff, but they'll get an hour and two or two there. It sounds like he had none. You, your mind, our minds are powerful, but they go in the wrong direction if we can't stop them too. So as powerful as our minds are, they can go right and they can go wrong. And if they go wrong, who knows what he was thinking, and maybe he just ended it. So th- those are the two stories there, the Rosabelle and Captain George Donner here, who really you know, make ob- you wonder. Ob- yeah, obviously you can, you can make, like, 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 we, like we just said, you can make a logical explanation for this, but you're never going to know, ever. And we are, and we are cynics by nature, and I, I think that's the right way to be. You have to question everything in order to find out the truth. These are the two stories that seem to, well, two of the ones that we've mentioned so far, that really make you wonder if there is something going on, if there is otherworldly things going on, or who knows, just inexplicable things that I like having my brain go outside the box and think about this stuff. So this is the stuff that intrigues me. June 23rd, 1950, Northwest Airlines Flight 2501 from New York to Seattle with a scheduled stopover in Minneapolis was flying over Lake Michigan. Now, this had left LaGuardia at about 7.30 p.m. with 55 passengers. And, and three crew members. And a crew of three. So 58 total. Captain Robert Lind, 35. First Officer Vern Wolf, 35. And Stewardess Bonnie Feldman, 25. Now, the first leg of their flight, for all intents and purposes, was easy peasy. Right? A beautiful summer evening, 1950. No weather. No clouds. Middle of summer, June 23rd. Right? Right? Everything's fine. No issues at all. Now, about two and a half hours into the flight, while they're over Ohio, they request to drop down to about 4,000 feet. Now, these were unpressurized aircraft, so not, you know, not like today, where obviously all the cabins are pressurized and you're flying well over 10,000 feet, right? He wants to drop down to 4,000 feet because so there, there is a storm in the area, and he wants to, he wants to be far enough below those clouds so they're not flying into those clouds, right? And they can stay away from any kind of turbulence that might be coming. This is in a DC-4, which are virtually extinct today. I think there's six. There's like five or six operable DC-4s in the world. They're completely obsolete. You know, but in 1950, this was your commercial airliner. So he has to drop down to 4,000 feet so he can, he can be under these clouds of the storm that's coming through. Now, later on, he was requested to drop to 3,500 feet by air traffic control. As there was eastbound planes coming out of the, out of the storm that he was trying to avoid who were flying at 4,000 feet. So they asked him to drop down, perfectly plausible, right? Drop down to 3,500 feet. We got other planes coming in your direction at 4,000 feet. So, so drop down so we, we can avoid any kind of bad stuff happening with planes colliding in the air, right? So now they knew a storm was in the area that they were trying to avoid. What they didn't know is that the storm was way worse than they had any idea of. They were not briefed on this beforehand. They were briefed on the storm, but apparently it had swelled up. It became an electrical storm. And it became really bad. And they didn't know this. They knew that there was a storm, but they had no idea how bad this was. So turbulence was in full effect. So weather reports out of Manitowoc that night were um, winds of over 70 miles an hour. And they're already flying low, 
right? They're at 3,500 feet. They've already been dealing with storm conditions. 70 mile an hour winds. That it doesn't get much. And they're fun, they're feeling that. all this. If they're at 3,500 right. feet, they're feeling all because it's you're low to the ground at that point. When I went skydiving, 3,000 feet is where you start. So they're just above that. So now, as the after they pass Battle Creek, Michigan, they call again and they request to drop again to 2,500 feet, likely due again to turbulence. They're 70 mile an hour winds. You're 3,500 feet. You're feeling all that. So they're trying to get out of that turbulence. They're about 18 miles north of Benton Harbor at that point. Right. So <laughs> about 11:37 p.m. So they were denied dropping to 2,500 feet, and this was the last communication ever from Flight 2501, and their stated position was just after Benton Harbor. What the hell's going on in Benton Harbor, Michigan? I mean, that's one of the points of the triangle. That seems to be where all the shit happens. Right, and I'd, I'd heard of it, but I didn't know anything about it until we started doing this research. But Now, the other thing is Benton Harbor portal is about 50 miles south of where they were supposed to be. So he's off course, well, and we don't know why. Why is he off course? Did he not know? Were they blown off course? Portal. Was he trying to fly around the storm? We're not sure. But about 12.15 on on June 24th, Flight 2501 is gone, disappears forever. Completely off the radar. Now, Valerie Van Heest, who is the director of the Michigan Shipwreck Research Association and probably the foremost expert of wrecks on Lake Michigan, has a wonderfully researched book about this called Fatal Crossing, highly recommend it, where she really dives into the people on board. You know, we, we hear about Flight 2501 at the time was the largest commercial disaster in American history. So a lot of people knew about Flight 2501, but a lot of people don't really know about the people on it. Valerie Van Heese really dives into this, and so you learn about the people who were on that plane. There, was a, there were families with children, there was a couple on their honeymoon, a man flying to Seattle to walk his daughter down the aisle at her wedding. Three women were pregnant. These are the stories that you don't hear when you just hear about a plane crash. In 2001, the Michigan Shipwreck Research Association was formed. It's based out of Holland, Michigan, and the goal was to preserve Michigan's submerged maritime heritage by finding wreckages and answers. All types of wreckages, not just ships, but also planes. Yeah, so, so Valerie Van Heest, who is, I think she's one of the founders of the MSRA, is a wonderful researcher. I've read many things that she's done. She's been on a lot of TV shows searching for, you know, downed planes and shipwrecks in, in Lake Michigan. She's just, she's, she's very knowledgeable. Like I said, probably the foremost expert on Lake Michigan wrecks, whether it be planes or shipwrecks. Now the official search, the official search, for 2501 begins at dawn off the shore of Milwaukee, and it turns up nothing. Why did it start off the shore of Milwaukee? Because he actually, after he passed uh, Battle Creek, Michigan, he's, his next stated, I think, call of reference was going to be Milwaukee. So they, and he never called in again. So that's where they, they started their, their search, and they turn up nothing. Fishermen started pulling up debris in nets, off the coast of South Haven, Michigan, which is way on the other side of the lake. And soon the beach there was getting littered with debris, luggage, hundreds of personal effects, toys, dolls, clothing, and yes, human remains, pieces of bodies, nothing that could be identified, arms, legs, flesh, 
It became so gruesome that they had to close the beach. They couldn't let people see this. It, it, it said that bodies were, quote, shredded. Only a blanket with the Northwest Airlines logo located to indicate that the plane had gone into the water at all, the plane itself. But as you said, body fragments and light debris washed up on shore and many days following. So it's funny that the plane didn't appear, but the bodies did. 7,000 pounds of stuff. Stuff. Well, body pieces and, you know, luggage and, and whatnot. Right. Which, you know, think about 7,000 pounds is a fraction of how much. How big that plane right, is. But, but, but it's funny how most of it was not plane residue. Now, again, as I said, for this was at the time the worst commercial plane crash in American history. And for a day, for a day, it was the biggest story in the country. Only for one day. Because although this crashed on June 24th, we invaded Korea on June 25th, pushed it right off the newspapers, and this quickly became forgotten. 58 people gone. That wasn't over the Michigan Triangle. Korea was not over the Michigan Triangle, no. And that's quite explainable. Um, so like, nothing today, nothing's been found of that plane. Still no remnants, still no reason necessarily that they can confidently talk about families were never given an explanation of what happened no burial ceremonies no memorials nothing we went from a, the largest plane crash in american history one day to a war the next and a your plane crash war. is now not important now in in recent years valerie van heest has found out that the human remains that washed up on shore were actually buried in mass graves and cemeteries in saint joseph michigan and south haven michigan completely unmarked, and the families were never told. Two mass graves of body parts from that plane. And they wouldn't tell the families. The families were never told. This was just found out in recent years. What do you think is the reasoning for that? I, like, I have no I don't understand no what answer. the logic is behind that. Like, what are they hiding? They didn't do it. I don't understand why you wouldn't tell the people who want just want to know where their family member is. That's poor governmental action, in my opinion. The, the official report, um, and I don't know if this was from the NTSB or whoever came out with this official report from the government. You know, normally these things are hundreds of pages long, right? Four pages. Again, Four pages. what are they covering up? I don't think they're, I, you know, I think this was simply, this is now second rate news. And our focus is on this other thing going on on the other side of the More world. people died in the Korean War, so we're talking about, but, but how did it never get revisited? It, it wasn't until recently when, when you know, Valerie Van Heest and uh, Clive Cussler, the author. Everybody knows that name. The author and explorer. Ha he's sunk a lot of money. No pun intended. Probably shouldn't have even used that word. He's put a lot of money it's kind of funny, into finding this plane. He's an explorer himself. He, he you know, he delves into this stuff a lot. But he's, oh, he puts a lot of money into a lot of this, especially in this area. Right. Yeah. He sponsored a lot of this stuff. So she, Van Hees actually um, spearheaded donations to erect headstones at the cemeteries. So the mass graves are now marked today, which they weren't for 50 years, over 50 years. So Valerie Van Heest, with with the help of, of Clive Cussler, have searched for this, continue to search for this. I think she does... She's out here all the time. There's a so she's actually uh, Josh Gates, a very well known uh, TV personality explorer, on his show um, Expedition Unknown, does an episode on Flight 2501, and Valerie Van Heest is on that episode. It's a it's a great episode. 
she she shows the personal effects that she has in her collection. They go out, um, and you can really see what they're doing to try to find this plane. And they're they're spending lots and lots of money and lots of lots of time to find this plane. Sixty years after it went down, seventy plus years after it went down, and um, so far, no luck. A few other things to note. It's been said that local on-ground reporters were told of seeing huge flashes in the sky during this. Those reports were confirmed by plenty of other people, whether that means they're true or not. But one one local actually explained, quote, It was a funny light. It looked like the sun when it goes down. It only lasted a second and then was gone, unquote. Just kind of summarizing that it was a different kind of scenery in the sky than you normally see with any kind of explosion, any kind of crash. And I guess after two hours later, two police officers actually reported an inexplicable bright red light hovering over the lake for a solid 10 minutes. To date, nothing else has ever been recovered, and the cause is still unclear. And that's kind of why I said the official search didn't happen until dawn. You know, yeah, we don't know what those red lights are. Those could have been search. Those could have been search helicopters already. Right, but the fact that it was two police officers that reported right. this bright red light makes it a little more credible, in my opinion. So it's it's unknown. It's unknown. Obviously, weather was, was the factor here, but it's unknown as if, if the plane, did the plane explode in the sky? Or did it hit, or, or did it hit Lake Michigan at, I think the estimated speed, if that happened, they est- based on how things were found, shredded up, which was the word used, they estimated that it would have been at 4,000 miles an hour. And that's faster than the plane was going, but that's including drop-down speed, right? That's including how fast the plane was going and gravity, pulling that plane down to the, to the water. That's, that's an awfully fast speed. So we move on to one of the, in the midst of all these weird stories we're talking about, kind of one of the weirder. One of these things is not like the other. The weird stories. These are all shipwrecks and plane crashes and stuff. This one's this one's just bizarre in its own right, and it doesn't really pertain to the rest of them. So this is the story of Stephen Kubaki. Stephen Kubaki was a 23-year-old college student at Hope College in Holland, Michigan. So here we're in you know, right on the coast of Lake Michigan again in Holland, Michigan, in 1978. So he, he'd left for a solo cross-country trip. So he's going, he's going cross-country skiing, and he says he's going to be gone for a day or so. Along the coastline near Saugatuck, Michigan. So he, he's known, Kubaki is, is known to be an enthusiastic outdoorsman, right? He'd, he'd previously climbed mountains, he studied in, in Europe and did a lot of hiking and mountain climbing in Europe. He'd been cross-country skiing in the same area in Lake Michigan many times before. So that was not unusual for him to do this. Um, what was unusual is that he didn't come back. And there was, I mean, by himself is one thing, but there were literally no witnesses around to explain anything that we're going to describe now. So snowmobilers in Sagatuck spotted cross-country skis abandoned with a backpack and obviously they contact authorities and they launch an air search for Mr. Kubaki here. And what they find is a 200 yard trail of footprints in the snow heading right to the lake and actually crosses into the lake. 
and then they just abruptly end. No hole in the ice, no nothing. Just right. stop. They, there's no trail coming back, nothing. The footprints going out to the lake, they just end. With his skis and backpack, the only thing that was recovered nearby. So they, even though they don't see where it would have happened, they surmise that he fell in, he fell through the ice and then just iced over again. Or he froze, but you think you'd have found the, his body. So he's... Even though the ice was exceptionally thick that way. Right, yeah. So, so to have fallen through, just a, a student at that age to f- have fallen through... I'm sorry, the fattest person doesn't probably fall through the ice that thick, so kind of just inexplicable at this point. So to the world, he's likely dead, right? To the police think he's dead. Hope College did give him a degree in absentia, so he, he was never declared dead, but it certainly he was feared dead. Um, they still did give him, I guess, kind of a not really a posthumous degree, but they gave it to him in absentia, which means he wasn't there. Um, what other reasonable reasonable explanation is there that he's not that he's not dead unless abduction? Right, you know that's is that really reasonable at that point? So now now the family Especially did back then the family did you know obviously their their son's missing but they spent thousands of dollars on private investigators to find their son because again where were the police why did they have to spend thousands of dollars on private investigators because it was surmised and assumed by everybody that he is not coming back. He's at the bottom of the lake somewhere or frozen in a cube somewhere. So then, you know, one day, 15 months later, so now we're on May 5th, 1979, Stephen Kubaki is not dead. He's not on the bottom of Lake Michigan. He wakes up in a field in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. 700 miles away. 700 miles away, due east. Like you can... Like straight, straight as the like crow a flies. Straight line east, seven hundred miles away in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, which is where he's from. That area. Woke up alive and well, without any recollection of what had happened before that, or why he was in this familiar, but new location, very distant location. So he didn't realize how long he's been gone, right? He's he doesn't. He's not really sure what the hell happened. But he doesn't realize how long he's been gone until he picks up a newspaper and sees the date. And it's, you know, 15 months later than what he thought it was, which makes me think of, you a know, movie? Back to the Future. Yeah, well, and <laughs> many other movies, too. Right? Marty picks up the, the newspaper out of the trash can. 1955! Great Scott! So, he now he realizes where he is. I wasn't talking about you. I mean, no, that was a line. No, okay. No. I mean, you're great. Thanks for no. taking me off my purse. <laughs> now, he realizes where he is. He recognizes the town, and he finds that he's, he's within, you know, he's uh, a short distance from his aunt's home. So, he walks to his aunt's, his aunt's house, and, you know, just moseys on up to her front door and says, hey, here I am. Here I'm, I'm, I'm your nephew that's been dead for 15 months. So he's reunited with his family, completely out of the blue. And it said he was wearing weird clothes, whatever that means, and his backpack contained random maps. His backpack was filled with maps um, that they're saying had hitchhiking signs. Right. A lot of the stories, it seems like it's speculation. They, they, they know what he might have said at the time, but... After that, it's just projection. So it looks like he was Projecture. he was traveling during this time that he was missing all over the place. He was in Sacramento. He was in San Francisco, Reno, Chicago, Utah. He had $40 in cash, new glasses, sneakers, which he didn't recognize were his own, 
and a t-shirt from a marathon in Wisconsin. Quote, I feel like I've done a lot of running, he said in an interview. His only interview that he did when he reappeared. As he acted like he didn't know where he was or what he'd been doing. Fifteen months later, he didn't remember any of this. So his memory, he says, right up until the disappearance remained intact. He said that the last thing he remembered was feeling cold and scared of being lost in the frozen darkness. So he's saying in that 15 months that he was gone, he has no memory, no idea of where he was or how he got there or what happened. So now... Wearing different clothes. Wearing clothes that he didn't recognize. You think he'd be in the same clothes. So, you know, this is where this kind of lost time comes in to the Lake Michigan Triangle. And you didn't see the Lake Michigan Triangle tied to this story. This was a big story when it happened, kind of. It made headlines. People were talking about it. It lasted for a day or so and it was gone. But now... You know, as we as we go into, you know, blogging and the advent of the Internet, now people tie this to the Lake Michigan Triangle because he's saying, there's 15 months here that I don't know where I was or what I was doing. What happened? Alcohol and drugs have a strong effect. Just so, throwing that so, out there. I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with you at all. <laughs> so today, Stephen Kabaki is alive and well. He's out on the, on the Pacific Northwest, and he's a psychologist. He's written books. One book that he wrote is called The Meta-Mathematical Foundations of Existence. Godel, which I'm assuming means Kurt Godel, the famous uh, philosopher, Quantum, God, and Beyond. For decades, he's refused to speak to the media. He doesn't answer questions about this. And he's a respectable, well-known, well-written, well-spoken professor and, and just knowledgeable human being. And yet... Some people would like to believe that it was an alien abduction, while others believe he's just... His educational background is... Right. Obviously, when he came back from wherever he was, he went back to school. And maybe maybe this experience he had led him to different understanding of his own brain and, and... because I've heard a lot of theories about Nikola Tesla, you know, having contact with extraterrestrial, which allowed him to understand things that other people didn't understand, which is why he had all these different experiments. And maybe this guy had that if it was an alien abduction. But other people would say that he was just lying. He had a story he wanted to tell at the time, but now he doesn't want to. Now that he's a well-respected professor and, and, and just a well-spoken, intelligent human being, he doesn't want to speak of it. So... It just seems he's very... he's given he's talked to reporters once and that was when he re- reappeared back you know, then nineteen seventy nine right away right? when he reappeared and then he just said he didn't know where he was but so he does not speak about it today he doesn't answer questions about it today he ignores interviews attempts he has an ex wife who people also kind of go to to ask questions she refuses to talk about it so she's an ex wife and she's in agreement to not talk about it so. What was going on? Just makes it. It's just like the story of the captain who disappeared. There's just so many questions that your brain can just go in so many directions. I mean, it's not a hoax, right? I mean, he disappeared for 15 months. Now we don't know what he was doing. Right. People didn't know where he was. Right. But maybe he went on. Maybe he was a Grateful Dead groupie. Right. You know what I mean? I'm not saying that about a guy who's got his credentials. Again, he's got, yeah, he's got multiple PhDs. He was a professor at the university. But he of was only a student at the time. Maybe he was experimenting with a lot of stuff and just forgot it. People have blackout periods in their lives, and I'm not trying to. That that's all conjecture. I'm not trying to accuse him of anything. Or possibly it was a time in his life he doesn't remember. 
or he's not proud of. It just seems so speculative and, and strange, which makes my brain just want to know more about it. Now, he has his own website called, obviously, you can guess, it's called stephenkubaki.com. Now, it says his bio that he wrote on his website says, Stephen Kubaki, PhD, is a believer in praxis, the old Greek word that denotes the making real of ideas and imagination through some form of action. He is not merely interested in the frontiers of knowledge, but engages in activities and adventures, physical and cerebral, to expand the boundaries of the possible. This seems to me that he was kind of doing his own experiment here. He, you know, he's he's got another book that he wrote, and I don't have the the I don't have the title right in front of me, but it's it's basically, you know, what he talks about a lot is that our understanding of the world is so minuscule to what there is that uh, reality is not necessarily what we understand. And I don't disagree with that at all. No, our senses don't catch most of what's going on. Right. And and th- there's a lot, like you say, there's a lot more that our brains can't even comprehend as far as if there is otherworldly existence and all that stuff. So just our senses alone probably missed 75% of what's going on. So what he's saying is not untrue, but... It doesn't necessarily explain away what happened to him but for 15 months. Either. When he says he, quote, engages in activities and adventures, so physical and cerebral, to expand the boundaries of the possible, this tells me that he, he ran off and he was maybe trying to see if he could disappear, what were people's reactions were to it like when he disappeared. Like a social experiment. Right, yes. But, I mean, does that, does that involve... Um, <laughs> recreational narcotics and stuff or was he just seeing if he could go off the grid and I, there's no way we can know the answer to that but i wonder if he meant in his own mind if he was going to another place or if he meant can i escape the grid and have nobody understand where i am or who i am or what i'm doing for 15 months i think the, he I the think fact he, that he won't talk about it leaves a lot of questions i think he wanted to see the country and he didn't want his parents calling him every 10 minutes saying where are you and what are you doing that's what I think he was doing. Yeah. But, you know, again, as... More power to him if it, it got him to where he wanted to be. In the advent of, of the internet and blogging and the Lake Michigan Triangle, you have all of these people saying, this is alien abduction, this is lost time, this is UFOs and whatnot. But he's not denying it. That's the part that kind of bothers He's not me. saying anything about it. He right? knows that people are speculating on that and all that. He could just come out and say, yeah, I went on a tour for a while. Which everybody to understand at that age, you're a student, you're, you know, you just want to go do your own thing. But, and I mean, on one hand, it's like I said in, in the Rock Lake episode, there's something to be said for these stories, whether they're true or not, that allow our brains and our minds to go into different places. If it's a flat out lie, you know, you know, come forward. On one hand, I, I do like that my mind goes to these places, but on the other hand, if you're just lying just to get attention or to create some kind of fabulous story, you know, the world creates enough oddities as it is. We don't need that. You know, we don't know that he was lying. I mean, was right. was he as, as, a, as a poor college student in Michigan in 1978? Is he thinking that, you know, the experiment that he's going to conduct here is going to make the world wait on their hands and knees into what it's going to be? He no. doesn't know that. And I we mean. don't know what happened to him in those 15 right. months either. Who knows? Right. Now, you know, obviously the UFO aspect there. The possibility of people calling this a UFO alien abduction story kind of brings us to what happened over Lake Michigan on March 8th, 1994. Now, this would be the subject of the Unsolved Mysteries episode, which is airing right now on Netflix. 
um, as I, I said earlier on the newest inclination of it. And it kind of reminds me of your story from a couple of episodes. It is, it is similar. It, it does have some similar aspects to it. Now, which I'd like to happen to me again. I'm what, just declaring that. What happened? I'm mad. Here um, is dozens of people on March 8th, 1994, saw strange lights from Muskegon down to Benton Harbor, Michigan, along the shore of Lake Michigan um, and moving out over Lake Michigan. Now, a lot of times you have people see this. You know, a lot of times you have people see strange lights. Having that validation that other people saw it is nice. That's why what happened with me a few weeks ago when that an entire face group, Facebook group started, when yeah. I had no idea that anybody else saw it. You have thousands of people backing up your story, that's, right? That's validation. Now, the interesting thing about this, and this, again, this is documented in the Unsolved Mysteries episode, is that all of these 911 calls are recorded, right? You have all these people calling 911 saying, are you guys seeing these lights in the sky? And also, what makes this a bit different is that this was all corroborated by the National Weather Service. Now, there is a recorded conversation from dispatch talking to the National Weather Service in Muskegon, Michigan, about these things that are in the sky. And the National Weather Service validates these lights because he was seeing all kinds of things on the radar that he had no explanation for. People are saying that these lights were red and green and white. They were kind of referred to as Christmas lights. Three bright lights, though. And they they would come together and they would form kind of one blob of light and then they would bust apart into other formations and they would form these triangle formations about 7,000 to 12,000 feet above the lake now the 911 is getting all hundreds of Michigan residents so the Detroit Free Press March 20th 1994 says about 9:40 p.m. that night March 8th Holland police officer so we have law enforcement involved here you know, quite a bit. Holland police officer Jeff Velhaus got a call to investigate several reports from the west side of town. Quote, several people had reported seeing lights in the sky. It was their color and movement that attracted me, unquote. He said the lights were moving to the southwest towards Lake Michigan. One light was green, the other was red, green, and white. They did not flash or revolve. They kept standing still, then moving. Velhaus then spoke to the operator of the Muskegon radar that picked up the controversial echoes. He said he had three things on the radar, and they were in a triangular shape. He said they hovered over Holland and moved southwest. He said that one light would move out in the triangle pattern and then move back in. So you have corroboration here from dozens of people that called 911 with law enforcement on the ground seeing these, with radar at the National Weather Service in Muskegon. So again, dispatch calls, 911 calls the National Weather Service because they're getting all these calls. And they ask, it was only manned by one guy and his name was Jack Bushong. So he's working at the National Weather Service and they said, we're getting all kinds of calls about things in the sky. Are you seeing anything on radar? And so he checks and he sees all kinds of things on radar that he can't explain. He's seeing these objects. He says some of their movements are the equivalent of 72,000 miles, miles an, an hour. hour. No man-made craft can move anywhere near that. That's flying from New York to L.A. in two minutes. Not happening on this earth. Right? And it's spotted going from 4,000 feet up to 55,000 feet in a matter of seconds. Impossible. right? Not by, not by anything we have. Yes. So he's seeing this on radar. This is 
the National Weather Service. This isn't some kook in his basement, right? This is the National Weather Service. And he's, so he's seeing them on radar split apart and he's watching them hover. He watched them hover over Lake Michigan, right off, you guessed it, Benton Harbor, Michigan, for two to three hours, right? Now there's all kinds of law enforcement, again, that is seeing this and this too. And they're obviously responding to people who are calling in and seeing it. So dozens of people see this. But, you know, the thing is, because these calls, because it was 911 who called the National Weather Service, all these calls are recorded. We can hear all these calls today. You know, these, these calls got into the hands of a journalist who put it out there for the masses. So what we have today are the recorded conversations between 911 dispatch and the National Weather Service, Jack Bushong. And this is, I mean, it's basically irrefutable. I mean, what what do you say about this stuff? So, well, I mean, and, and people are possibly easily influenced and want to believe what they want to believe. But when this many reports are happening all in one night, all at one time, there has to be something to be said for the numbers of the reports. And again, UFO, UAP doesn't necessarily mean extraterrestrial or otherworldly or whatever, but it's something people didn't understand. And, you know, again, I hate kind of going back to this, but what I saw a few a few weeks ago, there's no, I love that you keep going there back to that. There is no question, none, zero question, that there were things in the sky that I can't, I can't tell you what they were, but they were not... And you're a natural cynic about this stuff. They were not moving like anything. They were not airplanes. They were not drones. They weren't moving anything that... that I know of what they were. Were they alien? I'm not saying that either. No, you won't. I'm saying I don't know what they were, and but you they are, were there. You are someone who's done extensive research in the paranormal, and this one experience made you start wondering if if some of that... It, well, it, it makes me wonder, yes, but I still I still believe in my core that it the, was... The point is you're, you're cynical about it, and you should right. be, until you know I have 100% proof or enough proof to validate your argument... You should question it, and that, and that's my point. There's it's, there's no question that the lights were there, and that you're not again, just make we're not just making up stories. We we both have cynical minds. We question everything, and that's the whole point I'm trying to make. There's no question that the lights were there, none, and it's been validated by a thousands, whole bunch of people that have seen people, it. Right. Uh, well, the question is what they were, right? Right, and but when that know, many people are doing it, something was there. So I believe what I believe it was is that it was some kind of a social experiment conducted by our government. I don't believe it's alien. That doesn't mean that it wasn't. I have no no freaking clue. But even no that sounds conspiracy. So It is I mean, conspiracy either. because right. the government's not saying they were doing it. Right. Now, but and, the, and the government has gotten to the point where they're not afraid to talk about extraterrestrial in the last few years. Now, if you go back to this story, days after this broke, what happens? The National Weather Service completely backs off it. Says, nope. Uh, Mr. Bushong here didn't know what he was looking at. Uh, it was natural. They kind of try to explain it away by some natural, uh, you know, temperature shifts, which creates... Sure, they don't you know, want to get a bad reputation from talking stuff. about speculation. These are highly trained people, 911 operators and National Weather Service operators. This isn't any kind of weather anomaly that, that a meteorologist didn't understand. Not happening. But they don't want to take on a bad reputation from people who just right. thinking they're not credible. So they basically threw Jack Bushong right under the bus. Said he's an idiot, doesn't know what he's talking like about. Like the government would do any with any of its ex-employees ex who want to talk about this stuff. They basically ran him out of Michigan. And he wound up having a career somewhere, I think in Atlanta or something. And all this is documented in that Netflix episode on, on Unsolved Mysteries. Highly recommend. Go watch really it. Really interesting, yeah. Go watch it. So, and the guy, he questions himself as he's saying it even, but he's 100% certain, which just 
makes you believe it. He, he's a bit of a cynic himself. So, and as you said, Mickey, you know, he he was kind of in hiding about this story for thirty he years. He was afraid to talk about it because he thought everybody be he's crazy. Until the the kind of the the government now is is, you know, you can see a pattern here when they're opening up a little bit more to right. saying, you know what. There are things out there that they're starting to admit it. They're not so, really right. sure what's going on right now, he, and he's going to talk about it because the government's not afraid to talk about it. And that's what I keep saying through a lot of these kinds of episodes we've had. Maybe we didn't understand this stuff before, but we're getting to the point where we have the technology, and the knowledge, and the open minds to discuss these things without jumping to conclusions and assuming that you're crazy for doing so. And that's the part that I like. Now, you know, this is probably the best known. Uh, UFO incident over the Lake Michigan Triangle. There have been more. Obviously, we mentioned before about the strange lights that in the sky that we're seeing after Flight 2501 went down. There was also a well-known incident in 1978, which involved Coast Guard stations. Again, we're not we're not dealing with random people here. These are Coast Guard stations in four different places: Ludington, Michigan; St. Joseph's, Michigan; Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin; and Two Rivers, Wisconsin. All were tracking a, quote, cigar-shaped object said to have displayed red, white, orange, and green lights and moving at an estimated speed of approximately 1,200 miles an hour. This is similar to what they were describing in 1994. So this, again, this is reported by four different Coast Guard stations on both sides of the lake. It then goes up and it's reported seen um, by the Green Bay Lighthouse and it's reportedly seen later that night in the Apostle Islands. 250 miles north. Now, there's there's stories that crewmen at these Coast Guard stations were taking pictures of it with, obviously, 35-millimeter cameras back then, and people tried to get their hands on that through the Freedom of Information Act, and they're told by the government, yeah, you know what? Lost the negatives. Sorry, we can't give them to you. So, you know, obviously, and this is in 1978. The other one is 1994. They were pretty tight-lipped about this stuff. They're not going to admit that they're following cigar-shaped crafts in the sky over Lake Michigan. Today, who knows? Again, UFO does not mean alien. You know, there's reasons that the government might have, and they may be completely legit reasons to deny this stuff. Or not just our government. Right, and and like you say, doesn't mean otherworldly, but maybe other countries are spying on us in some way. And again, that's conspiracy type stuff, but... It, it doesn't necessarily mean it's not stuff going on here on our planet with people in charge here. But, but, you know, the government can't say anymore, no, nah, that wasn't really there. You know, too many people are seeing this. There's too many, you know, ways to document this now that people have that they can't say anymore. You're not really seeing what you're saying that you saw. There's things that are being documented that the government can't explain. This kind of leads us to the the most recent weird thing going on in Lake Michigan, and that would be what is known as, which is not accurate, but it's known as Lake Michigan Stonehenge. Now, this is a rock formation found in about 40 feet of water in Grand Traverse Bay in Michigan. Found in 2007 while researchers were surveying the area for shipwrecks to preserve them. They've reported that there's more than 6,000 shipwrecks that lie beneath all of the Great Lakes. Other historians figure that there's upwards of 25,000 wrecks in all of the Great Lakes. There's an estimated 30,000 lives lost, and they figured that around 1,500 of these shipwrecks 
occurred in Lake Michigan, only 300 have been located. Only 300 out of, out of what, 1,500, 1,800? That, uh, according the, to estimates. And they, I, I read that they believe that there's upwards of 12,000 dead bodies in Lake Michigan. Just that one. Just 30,000 in, Lake in right. the lakes alone, but 12,000 in Lake so, Michigan. Now, this rock formation found in Grand Traverse Bay it was found in 2007 while researchers were, were looking for shipwrecks to preserve. Now, this is not similar to Stonehenge at all, so that's misleading. Um, the, I've been to Stonehenge, by the way. It's amazing. You always talk about the places you've been. I've, been I've never been to Stonehenge. I would it's love amazing. to go there. It's really cool. Yeah. You you don't get to do the Clark Griswold visit as an European vacation. Well, then why go? You're not knocking it over like Domino's because you don't get to be that close, but it's still really cool. They have a, they have a whole museum and a gift shop and all that stuff. It's it's really well done, but it's, it's so cool to see it. These rocks are enormous, and the material is from hundreds of miles away. Which again leads to a lot of speculation, but the point is, if you get a chance to go see it, it's amazing. And and these rocks at Stonehenge are like tons, right? right? They they're weigh huge, like tons, right? And they're just right? one piece, each one of them. Yeah. So these rocks in the bottom of Lake Michigan are not that; they are not tons. They range from about the size of a basketball to the size of kind of a small car. So calling it Lake Michigan Stonehenge is not accurate. That is not a term that was coined by the people that found this. Uh, that's coined by internet people and bloggers. So the whole Lake Michigan Stonehenge thing is um, kind of ridiculous. But they are the rocks are kind of in, and it's in an area where there are no rocks, which is the interesting part, right? It's, that is, it's sand. It's just a sandy bottom. That's what for makes them stand miles off. and miles. Right. And then you have this kind of this kind of formation of these rocks that seem like they're placed there. Um, Basically, it's in a line, but there's two circles in the line. Uh, they use sonar to detect these things. So they, they found this, this kind of rock formation, but they also found, which a lot of times is reported as being part of this rock formation. It's actually outside of what is known to be this formation. But they found a rock which looks like it has a petroglyph of a mastodon on it. And it really kind of does look like a mastodon. Right. Now, the interesting thing with that, obviously, is that mastodons have been extinct for 10,000 years. And this, for this rock formation to get there, obviously that would not have been underwater when that was placed there, which would have been before the last ice age. Now, we do know that people have lived with mastodons because they found in America, I think in the southern part, Florida, maybe, Mississippi, something like that, but they have found human tools in like piles of mastodon bones. So we do know that people have lived with mastodons in North America going back 14,000 years. So it's possible. It hasn't been thought for a long time. But, you know, this rock formation down at the bottom of Lake Michigan, which is not Stonehenge, not even close. It's much smaller and it's, it forms a straight line. So it's not even the same. It forms a straight shape. line with two circles in it, right? And the, the guys who were given credit for discovering this is one is professor from Northwestern Michigan College, Dr. Mark Holly, and his colleague, Brian Abbott. Dr. Holly said, quote, It should be clearly understood that this is not a megalith site like Stonehenge, unquote. So again, the interesting thing is that these stones are where they shouldn't be. There's, it's just sandy bottom for miles. And then you have this, which seems to be this formation placed there intelligently with a rock in the 
in the vicinity with a carving on it of a of an extinct animal. And when you look at that, kind you, of you, random. And you can, I mean, this is obviously you can find this online. It looks like a freaking mastodon, right? You know, and that's you know, is that going to happen in nature? I don't know, man. But again, it's so random and accurate, and that's and that's where the speculation leads as to how old these could possibly be. So th- this is a, it's a legit site. The exact spot of this has never been disclosed. Researchers have kept its existence and location as much of a secret as possible. I mean, we know we know the general area of where it is in this day and age the, the reasons that they would not necessarily want this information to get out as to the location out of respect for the nearby grand traverse bay native americans and also for fear of disruptions from divers and curious swimmers who might you know do what people do and you you see all kinds of stuff online bloggers saying that this is you know is this causing does this some kind of have does this have some kind of magical force that's causing a lot of these things in the Lake Michigan Triangle. That is not even in the Lake Michigan Triangle, which a lot of things really. Some of the things that we've talked about today, and it's 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 hard to boundary that. You know, the Lake Michigan Triangle, as we said, goes from Manitowoc to Ludington, down to Benton Harbor, which is a weird place, apparently. Apparently a lot of stuff happens. Back right up there. to Manitowoc. Not a big city either, by the way. Which is outside of where a lot of these things happen. So maybe you're Michigan rectangle, maybe another shape would be better. Maybe people are just biased towards but the it, triangles. It, you know, but it would have to entail a lot of. I mean, it's a it's a massive lake. Right. Well, they all are. They're you called know? the Great Lakes. But I just feel bad for for other shapes. Why is it always triangles that get all this glory? Yeah, and and this goes back though to Charles Berlitz, who was the you know the the guy who popularized the Bermuda Triangle. We know today that the Bermuda Triangle, there is no evidence whatsoever that there's any more wrecks that happen in that area than there is in any other comparative area in the Atlantic Ocean. This same guy, Charles Berlitz, also has a book saying that there's a triangle in the Pacific Ocean. He calls that the Dragon's Triangle. Uh, he's written books on Atlantis, Mysteries of the Forgotten Worlds, The Philadelphia Experiment, Roswell Incident, more books on Atlantis, The Ship of Noah, Thing, you know, he's looking for, for Noah's Ark. So obviously, Charles Berlitz has uh, a pattern of writing things that are... Um, Grandiose. That's a good word for it. You know, you things that can't be disproved. You can't just... It seems like he, he takes an area where, where lots of things happen, and he puts a boundary around that, and he says, look at all the weird things that happen in this spot. This is kind of what I, what I think Jay Gorley did, too, when he wrote the book on the Great Lakes Triangle and broke it down into the Lake Michigan Triangle, where he encompassed in Lake Michigan where, obviously, the busiest shipping routes are. And he said, look at all the weird things that happen here. It's the Lake Michigan Triangle. But it doesn't take into account all the things that happen outside of the triangle. Or does it? Because a lot, a lot of the things that they, they want to kind of lump in with this, like the Griffin, which we talked about before, right. which the Griffin... If that sank on Lake Michigan, we don't even know if it did. There's a lot of people that think it sank on Lake Huron um, because it's never been found. It went down in 1679 or it went missing in 1679. It was the first ship ever to sail, uh, the first European ship ever to sail on the Great Lakes. And on its maiden voyage, it went missing after it left Green Bay. But if it did go down in Lake Michigan, the thought is that it left Green Bay and it went north. Because it's going back to Niagara, so it's going back through the Straits of Mackinac, um, back towards New York. So it, it was way north 
of what are the boundaries of the Lake Michigan Triangle. You look at the Thomas Hume. They found the Thomas Hume way south of the boundaries of the Lake Michigan Triangle. So, you Pentagon, know, Hexagon. The Pentagon, you know, Octagon, or, right. or just a massive circle over the Great Lakes. Or maybe you know? just the Great Lakes in general, right? And, again, it's probably weather and all this stuff. I, I like to believe that there might be otherworldly things going on, but... Because there's a lot of things that are explainable, like the Phoenix, which was a pretty famous shipwreck that happened off the coast of Sheboygan in the 1840s. The ship started on fire, and it had 250 people on board, and all but 40 were killed. Lots of children. So there's lots of things that's happened outside of the boundaries of that triangle that you can't just dismiss. Some of the other stories, to give you an idea of, of the number, on September 8th, 1860, a 252-foot-long wooden steamship, the PS, PS means paddle steamer. The Lady Elgin, captain by Jack Wilson, crashed and sank. It was mostly a passenger ship that hauled domestic cargo on occasion. But from all stories, it collided with a smaller 129-foot boat, the Augusta. And the, the funny thing about this story was that this smaller, much smaller boat sailed safely to harbor, relatively unscathed, while the PS Lady Elgin continued to take on water until sinking, carrying around 300 passengers to their deaths. And at the time, this would be the most open water deaths to that date. Another story that we can talk about was that of the strange occurrence in 1883 of a wooden tugboat named the Mary McLean, claimed to witness huge ice blocks falling from the sky. Apparently, according to legend and stories, occurred for a whole 30 minutes nonstop, these huge ice blocks falling from the sky, so powerful, dents were created in the boat's wooden structure. One block was saved and shown as proof for the fear that everybody would not believe the story. One more story was that of the SS Carl D. Bradley, which on November 18, 1958, it sank after its hull split in two. It was the largest ship on Lake Michigan at 639 feet, which is pretty big. And the sinking actually happened while returning from Gary, Indiana in a massive gale storm. Winds were up to 65 miles an hour, which caused 30-foot waves. All 35 of the crew died except for two, which were found on a raft 14 hours later. It's said that the sinking was a Titanic style which landing in two pieces that jutted upwards from the bottom of the lake. In 1997, divers found remains of this ship, proving that the hull failure was not an act of God. It was found near Beaver Island, as we've already mentioned, in Michigan. When you research the Lake Michigan Triangle, not all of these stories are together, right? It's like some people pick and choose which ones they want to put in there, depending on where it was, depending on whether you can explain how it went down. You know, because you see, if, if there's an explanation for it, well, then it's not really part of the Lake Michigan Triangle. A lot of times you don't see the Lady Elgin in there because it hit another ship. So some people don't put the Lady Elgin, you know, in with the Lake Michigan Triangle, but why not? There's some questions about that. Especially over the centuries with the weather that, I mean, when you have a body of water, there's going to be different weather systems that just appear out of nowhere, which especially back then when technology wasn't as far as sonar and radar and all that stuff and, and the ability to alert them, they wouldn't be able to prepare as quickly. They, they had an idea that this could happen, but when it came so suddenly, they didn't know how to prepare. So a lot of that would explain these shipwrecks and plane wrecks. The fact that they're not found, a lot of it, there, there's associations and, and crews that are going down and trying to find it all. But with erosion and decay and decomposition happening, 
it it's going to be hard to identify a lot of these crashes when there's so many so many different ships and and vehicles have tried to passage these waters it's going to be difficult to find them and identify them and know exactly what happened so as much as i want to believe it could be otherworldly portals and interdimensional things it's a little assuming to just pass it off as otherworldly when it just means we we don't have the artifacts or the, the the evidence to come up with an explanation but to assume things that are out of our knowledge it can be a little ridiculous right and there's a i mean human error is real too yeah i mean we have a we have a captain that seemingly (laughs) that seemingly fell off a ship here right you know i mean because he lost his mind sleep deprivation alone would be a good enough reason to believe that right so so just and just because we haven't found these vessels yet as we mentioned before out of the 15 or 1800 shipwrecks that have been in lake michigan alone all but 300 are not found we don't know where they are yet. And there's a show on History Channel that are, that are about the Bermuda Triangle where they're trying to research these ships and find out and just get the history, just explanations. But as they say, we need to do it soon because eventually we're not going to be, be able to. Right. Yeah, because the erosion and the decay and the decomposition is going to get to the point where you're not even going to recognize that it was a ship at any point or a plane. You're right. Because, because we can't find it, it doesn't mean that it's... Uh, you know, aliens or a vortex. It's, it's, or not a logical explanation. It seems kind of arrogant to me that we say, well, if, if we don't know what it is, then it's got to be, you know, some kind of otherworldly explanation. You know, I don't I don't think I, I subscribe to that. It's a reason that we don't know, which is okay. You know, but these, these, these stories are interesting without the Lake Michigan right. Triangle being just a part history, of it. Just to know what happened. And j- just conversely to what you said, my only argument is that it seems arrogant to me to think that we are the only intelligent human beings in our vast universe, which is why I'm a little quicker to believe that there might be otherworldly beings, because I don't believe that we're the only ones. If our vast universe is as, as great as the math says, I believe that there are other things coming in and checking us out. Maybe they haven't had contact with us. Maybe they have. But... I don't disregard those so quickly because I do believe it's arrogance that makes us think we're the only ones. We're so egocentric that we're the only beings in this vast universe. But, again, to jump to that stuff that we don't know enough about is a little ridiculous, too. Because a lot of these are just weather or just right. bad and, situations you know, or if, bad luck. If those are the two, if those are the two um, you know, explanations you have... Right. It went down in right. weather, or it was, you know, laser beamed <laughs> up by a UFO. <laughs> right. I'm kind of going with weather. Well, maybe, yeah. You know? There might be an in-between, too, that we could use, yeah. You know, but again, these, these stories are very, in- I, I really enjoyed the it's research the on this. It's history that we don't know. You know, these, these are stories that are very interesting without the Lake Michigan Triangle theory to them. The Thomas Hume, the Christmas tree ship, the Rosa Bell, these are interesting stories. Flight 2501. These are interesting stories. Yeah, the truth is out there, though, and I'm so intrigued by finding out what it really is as opposed to what we've just been told and what we're telling ourselves for so many centuries and thousands of years. And that, and finding these wrecks and, and getting to the bottom of it, that's going to help us 
figure out our history even more than we already know. You said something interesting in our Halloween episode, Mick, when, when you I said I say that, a lot of interesting things. You just don't always you know, know that. Maybe that um, a lot of those stories aren't necessarily true in the literal sense or in the world of reality. Um, it's part of our lore. Right. Right? And it's what makes people keep telling these stories. Makes it interesting. And, and I believe that with, with this as well. And we need to keep telling these stories because... You know, those were that those that were lost, or those that were affected by those being lost, they deserve at least that, right? I mean, these are things that we don't understand. There are things that we don't understand, and we may never understand, and that's that's okay because the mystery to me is the beauty. It's part of the imagination and the romanticism of the Great Lakes, which you know, again, is just another one of the the things that makes where we live. Uh, one of the most unique places on earth. Amen, brother. <laughs>